I just looked at my feet, she said, and tried not to throw up. Any thoughts who that might be? Good guess. Good guess. I realized that I gave you zero contextual clues, and that's a ridiculous question. I just thought that was kind of funny. This is actually Maggie Rogers. I don't know if you guys would ever have guessed that. And this is what she tells reporters when she's asked about meeting Pharrell Williams, her encounter with this guy. Anyone ever seen Despicable Me 2? Yeah. Remember the happy song? It was on the radio every day. I'm happy. That's him. So um, parents, you know what I'm talking about. Everyone knows what I'm talking about, Pharrell Williams. So at the time, Maggie was a student at, at NYU's Clive Davis Music Recording Institute. And so she came to class with all of her other classmates. Um, and the, the homework assignment that she was given the night before was to bring a song to class um, for her, her classmates and her professors to critique. So she's up, she shows up to class along with her classmates. And they come into the classroom. And there's an extra person there that shouldn't be there. It's Pharrell Williams. So you can imagine there's all kinds of starstruck faces like, oh my gosh, I did not expect this to happen. Why is this guy here? And he, he goes on to kind of listen to these poor students' songs. Could you imagine how nerve-wracking that would be? And as he's listening to them, some of them, he's giving some, some honest feedback. He's like, hey, you know what? I would, I'd stack the, the lead vocals on that second verse, or maybe you should do a vocal line there, or the, the harmonies are a bit off on that one. And you can just see them kind of starstruck, like, OK, all right, whatever you say for real. And then comes Maggie Rogers. And Maggie, anyone ever heard Maggie Rogers? She's pretty good. Yeah, check her out. This song called Alaska, she played. And she's like, he's asking her about the song. She's like, I just wrote it. It took me like 15 minutes to write it. And it's not fully complete. So just like kind of apologizing for her song. And um, it's, a, it's a great song, a striking song, even to mere mortal ears like my own. But as, as, as you watch, this is actually a YouTube video. As you watch the video, as, as Maggie's song begins to play, you can see Pharrell kind of like, become visibly impressed. Like he's like looking around like, did, did she really make this song? Like this is amazing. And his, his facial expression is somewhere between like confusion and astonishment. Like this came out of you? This is crazy. Like who is this person is what he's saying basically. And so Maggie's song comes to a close and after giving all the other students all kinds of feedback, he, it's, it's kind of quiet and she's just kind of awkwardly sitting there like she said, trying not to puke. And he's like, I have zero zero notes for your song. And he goes, I've never heard anyone like you before. I've never heard anyone like you before. And I've never heard anyone that sounds like that. So think about, okay, Pharrell's a famous music producer. Think about how many songs this guy would have heard. So many songs. Think about, you know, his neighbor from, you know, growing up is like, yo, dude, my cousin's got this rap album he wants you to hear. You know, he's at a party. People are handing their mixtapes that are terrible all the way to absolute bangers. Like he's been around all kinds of music. But to Pharrell, Pharrell Williams, this song was different. This song stood out. It's also worth noting that Maggie Rogers and Pharrell Williams would have been existing in different kind of musical worlds. Maggie Rogers is like singer-songwriter folk with like dance beats in it. And then Pharrell is like hip hop with nods to soul. So different worlds. And, and it's cool because in one, in one sense, Pharrell is like an insider of the insiders of, her, of his world, and Maggie's kind of this outsider. Maggie Rogers from rural eastern Maryland, who was just looking at her feet, trying not to puke, 
has amazed one of the most sought after music producers of our time. And the cool thing is it's all recorded on YouTube for, for you guys to see. And this YouTube video is actually what launched her career into what it is today. The title of my talk today is Amazing Jesus. Amazing Jesus, which raises the question, is that even possible? Can you amaze Jesus? And if that is possible, what exactly amazes Jesus? There are actually two times in the Bible where it says that Jesus is amazed. The first time Jesus is traveling around doing all kinds of beautiful things, like we were singing about his kingdom is coming, he's healing people, he's loving the unlovable, he's expressing in a human body what God's kingdom looks like lived out. And then he comes to his hometown and he's trying to do what he's already been up to, and he can't do it. And it says, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And the second time that the scriptures say that Jesus was amazed is from our story that we're going to be looking at today, from Matthew chapter 8, which is the second of the miracles of grace. And this is the story of Jesus healing the centurion's son. And so I want us to listen to this story today with that same question in mind that I just started with. What amazes Jesus? What amazes Jesus? Is that, is that okay with you guys? Should we dive in? And I want us today, we've, we, we're going to stand up as I read God's word because we are um, an embodied creature. And it's important that we don't just kind of come in and just sit into our seat and just kind of zone out. I want us to be engaged with God's words. So if you guys would stand, I'm going to get us to take a few deep breaths. Shake off whatever's holding you down. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer and then we'll read the scripture together. Let's take a few deep breaths. Come, Holy Spirit. And when Jesus came into Capernaum, a centurion came up to him, and he was begging him, Lord, my son is lying in my house, paralyzed and in terrible pain. And Jesus said to him, I'm coming to heal him. Lord, the centurion replied, I, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. Having soldiers under my command, I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus told the centurion, go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his son was healed that very moment. This is God's word. Let's just pray. Father, we acknowledge um, that you are a God who is real, that um, we Though our faith at times wavers and is weak, uh, all you say we need is a mustard seed and we can move a mountain. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, wherever we're at in our journey of faith, wherever we're at in following you, Lord, whether we know you or we're getting to know you or we have no idea who you even are yet, Holy Spirit, would you come reveal Jesus to us through this story? And Jesus, would you point us to your Father and show us what you are really like? We thank you, God, that you're trustworthy and faithful. So would you show up today? 
Would you take the words I've prepared? Would you multiply them? Um, would you use them for your honor and your glory? And will we leave here more in, in love with you and in de- with a deeper sense of trust in you? In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you guys to stand the rest of the time. I'm just kidding. Have a seat. So it would appear, if we want to amaze Jesus, then George Michael of Wham was right. You've got to have faith. I got to have faith. You got to have faith. And that's it. That's all I got today. So George Michael and Maggie Rogers. But let's start here. One of the misnomers or misunderstandings we have about faith is that faith is restricted to people within faith communities. So Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, Christians, these are the only people that have faith. But the reality is, is that faith is a human thing, meaning every single person you come across has faith, has some measure of faith. Faith comes to us naturally because faith is a human thing, which means this. You have faith. George Michael has faith. Your neighbors have faith. Your in-laws have faith. Your annoying coworker has faith. Your servant at Halibut House has faith. Your Amazon delivery person has faith because faith is a natural part of your existence. Faith comes naturally. Okay? In this story, we drop right into a situation of disruption. Many of us in this room are parents and can sympathize with this desperate father whose son is paralyzed and in great pain. Anyone have a kid ever who's gone through something? It's like the worst feeling. You will do anything to make this pain stop. That feeling of desperation for Jesus to do something for him is real and tangible. You can feel it in the text. Can you please heal my son? And what we see here is that this disruption has revealed the centurion's faith. Sickness of a loved one is one of the many ways in which our faith is revealed or comes into focus. So all of us have faith, and often disruption is something that brings it into focus. Think about it. Disruption exposes exposes what our faith is actually in. Many of us have gone through terrible loss and grief in our lifetimes. We've lost loved ones. We've lost jobs. We've experienced relational rejection. We've endured and are enduring ongoing sickness. We are, we've gone through divorce or marital infidelity or the repercussions thereof. We may have persisting mental health issues. All of these things reveal the deeper questions of life. Bad times don't create the need for faith, but they reveal where it lies. This is why maybe you're like me and we do everything in our power to remain distracted. Distracted from the disruptive world around us. Because if I can stay busy, I don't have to answer those big questions about the purpose of life. Why am I here? Why why am I becoming this type of person? Is there a God? And if there is a God, can he be trusted? And in C.S. Lewis's famous uh, little book called The Screwtape Letters, it's a fictional book where a senior demon is instructing another demon how to torment a human being. He's saying, hey, listen, as soon as he starts asking questions, get him busy. Because we don't want him asking those big questions. Disruption and often it's sidekick desperation. These things bring life into focus in a really unique and visceral way. I know you've experienced this. So faith comes naturally and faith comes disruptively. We all have faith and life circumstances reveal it. But what is faith? And maybe more specifically, what is the faith that Jesus is amazed by here. Anyone know the Greek word for faith? No. It's okay. It's pistis. 
which means uh, faithfulness, reliability, fidelity, commitment, assurance, oath, truth, proof, pledge, all these things orbit around the, the word pistis or faith. And beyond that, it's, it's also, so those are all verbs. It's also a noun, which is like a body of faith, belief, or teaching. So Christian faith, the faith, is both a noun, a thing, and a verb, an action, meaning it's both a set of ideas and an action. So if we think about uh, the Christian faith or the noun aspect of faith, think about the creeds, uh, statements of faith, um, truths of the faith that we hold to, orthodoxy, or a fundamental set of doctrines without which Christianity would collapse. This is what we believe, the tenets of our faith. But it's more than just that. It's also a verb. Trust or confidence, these are action words. I like Charles Price's definition here. He says this, faith in, as a verb is active dependence on God that leads to situations that become inexplicable apart from God himself being active. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, says this, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Or John Mark Comer's definition is a lot more simple and cerebral, confidence grounded in reality. The point I'm trying to make is this. The Christian faith is both a set of ideas and an action. It is actually something you do. So let's think about this. When faith is just a noun and not a verb, this is what it could end up like. You, you can be incredibly orthodox, but dead. You could be intellectually stimulating and you can argue your points, but you have no experience of God. You're experientially barren. Think of the story where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they're like, he's like, you're, you're searching the scriptures for me and I'm right in front of you. That's kind of the picture there. We know, we can know all about God without actually ever knowing God. This is all about head knowledge and not heart knowledge or experience. And equally, when faith is a verb without being a noun, it's also dangerous. So this can leave us full of confidence and expectation, but because it's devoid of any real substance, it will fail us eventually because of the expectations we have imposed on God. In our zeal, we've imposed all these things on God rather than receive from him and the truths that define him, right? God, you're going to do this for me, and it's all about what you want to have, to have done rather than who God, rooted in who God is and what he's about. So let me be clear. We want an orthodox faith. Don't get me wrong, we want to remain true to the faith that's been passed down faithfully for over 2,000 years, which means that the creeds matter, biblical authority matters, the church matters, doctrine matters. Wanting to understand and know these things is a worthy and beautiful endeavor. You should see my bookshelves. I have so many freaking books. But think about it this way. Even the demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God. But it has to be more than just mental assent. It has to be something more than just knowing who God is. So we want an orthodox faith, but we also want an experiential faith. We're a charismatic church, which means we believe in all the gifts of the Spirit, which means we want to see people healed. We want to see people delivered. We want to see people speaking in tongues. I joked to Timothy earlier, I'm going to go up and speak in tongues, and you have to bring the interpretation right now. We believe in all of these things. We want all of these things, but we want all of these things to be rooted and grounded in who God is. Not just that we want a big fancy meeting that's crazy and Kevin and I have to come up and bring order. We want to know and experience the fullness of God. We want to live a life of faith, which means we want an orthodox faith and an experiential faith. Amen? Um, faith is not simply learning to pass a doctrinal test or memorizing a catechism. Equally, faith is not blind. We're not just like, I don't know, whatever you think, Tom, I'll, I'll, I'll follow along with you, man. The Christian faith is reasonable, however, in my opinion. 
Elton Trueblood says this, that faith is not belief without proof, but it is trust without reservation. Trust without reservation. So for those of us who are following Jesus, you could say this about this whole thing we've been talking about so much here about becoming disciples of Jesus, apprenticeship to Jesus, spiritual formation. The Christian faith is the ongoing journey of learning to trust, trust Jesus in every possible area of life. I mean, I'll read that one more time. The Christian faith is the ongoing journey of learning to trust Jesus in every possible area of life. This is what faith is. Let's get back to the story. So the, the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, my son is in terrible pain. The centurion comes to Jesus in a state of desperation and equally in this place of confident humility. There's this level of self-awareness here. He's, he's risking his reputation as a well-liked and respected Roman official in order to come to who for many was just a carpenter stirring up a ruckus for help. Now, I doubt that the centurion's faith was orthodox or creedal. There's no mention of that, that he would have passed any doctrinal test. However, doesn't Jesus say something about faith like a mustard seed being able to move a mountain? So let's ask the right question here. So we're thinking about faith. How do we amaze Jesus? And we're trying to establish this idea. The question isn't, do you have faith? The question is this, who or what do you put your faith in? So you have faith. But the question that comes next is who or what are you going to put your faith in? Faith has to be in something. It could be in your bank account. It could be in your relationships. It could be in human approval. It could be in yourself. It could be in any number of things. I found some of my own faith coming into question this morning as I was failing in so many ways. I'm like, man, my faith is in what you guys think of me. Anyways, God is, God is speaking even as I'm thinking about these things this morning. So here, here's what I want us to think about. If we're wanting to understand and allow God to show us what our faith is actually in, this is the principle this idea is attached to. Our faith is only as valid as the object in which it is placed. Our faith is only as valid as the object in which it is placed. Meaning this, it is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that matters. Okay, so let me give you an illustration. Say you and I are mountain climbing, and we fall off onto this ledge. And you and I begin to argue because there's two ways out. There's this rock over here, and there's this rock over here. And we're trying to get back down the mountain. And so you're like, Tom, I believe with all my heart that this rock is going to hold our weight. We're going to just shimmy down here, and we're both going to be able to stand, and we're going to it, make it down from there. That's your idea. And then my idea is... I, I don't know, but there's something about this rock. I think this is actually the way to go. I could be completely wrong. I don't know, but I, I, think, I think this is the, the way we should go. And so in these two scenarios, so you, I'm like, you got to go first on yours, and I'll go first on mine. You go first on yours, and you jump, and the rock does not hold you, and you fall. I'm sorry. You made a bad decision. I go over onto my rock. I jump down, and it holds my weight. All kinds, your whole heart is there. Like, I'm, I'm 100%. I believe with all of my heart, Tom, that this rock's going to be able to hold us. And I'm like, I'm not sure, but I think this one. I'm going to put my trust and my faith in this one. Who was saved? You who believed with all of your heart or me on this one? I was. I believed in the right rock. It wasn't the measure of my faith. It was the right rock. 
And this is what comes into question when we think about faith in Jesus. I can have all kinds of faith. Our culture is constantly just saying, dude, believe in yourself. Put your whole heart and mind into whatever you want to do and you're going to be able to achieve it. And the Christian faith is, hey man, I don't know. A lot of my problems seem to be based in me trying to go in my own way. And these decisions time after time. But I'm struggling, Jesus. I want to believe you. Even that little mustard seed of faith, you're in the right direction. Because your faith is only as valid as the object in which you place it. Does that make sense? Okay, so the object in which faith is placed is the all-important thing that determines the validity of our faith. Even though the climber believed you with all his heart that that outcropping would hold you, you still ended up falling. Not because your faith was weak, but the object of your faith was inadequate to support you from falling. Right? So, faith is a disposition of trust in an object which allows that object to work on our behalf. In this illustration, what did I do for the rock? Nothing. I jumped on it. I let it do what it was supposed to do. It held my weight. I didn't have to coax it into it. I didn't have to like talk it up or like, let me help you help me. So who drove in their car here this morning? You exercise the level of faith. You're going to do something for me I can't do for myself. Did you have to like sweet talk your car to get here? Yeah, Kevin might have. Yeah. Um, or anyone, anyone ever have a headache and take an aspirin? Yeah, you're, you're exercising a level of faith in the aspirin. I can't get rid of this headache, and so I'm going to put my faith in this aspirin that's going to take my headache away. I'm not doing anything for the aspirin. I'm just letting the aspirin do what it does for me. It's making sense. Okay, so for followers of Jesus, this is the journey of redirecting all of our trust, however little, however small, however big, our faith to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about the triangles we've been talking about the last couple of years. There's the whole life we're trying to get away from of, of our whole entire world being oriented around the self to a life oriented around God. So it's not enough to just have our brains be committed to Jesus. It's, it's like our whole person needs to be committed to the person, the work, the ethics, the teachings of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In other words, it is learning to let Jesus be Jesus in us and for us and also through us into the world around us. I said us a lot there, but let me say that one more time. We get to learn how to let Jesus be Jesus. Savior, healer, rescuer, redeemer. In us and for us, and also through us to everyone around us. It seems in this story that the centurion is beginning to understand this. It's like he's saying, I trust that Jesus can do something on my behalf. I cannot heal my paralyzed son who is in a ton of pain, but maybe this Jesus can. He can do something about the pain and suffering my child is experiencing. It appears that faith in this situation is just telling Jesus what is going on. There's no magic spell. Hey, Lord, my son is in terrible pain. Faith mainly seems to talk to the Lord. It often hardly knows what to ask or how to ask it. Sometimes all we need to do is just state the problem. The how and the what of the help we need are the Lord's business. So if we all have faith, and faith is re revealed in disruption, what we see here is the centurion redirecting his faith to Jesus. The journey from a life oriented around self to a life oriented around God, trust in self, or trust in God. 
faith in self or faith in God. So another clue here, it would appear that what amazes Jesus in people, even Roman centurions, is people who put their faith, however meager or large, in him. So this, this, this need is expressed, and then Jesus responds. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming to heal him. And Dale Bruner says this. He says, no sooner is Jesus approached by this, this second representative of all that is unclean to Israel than Jesus is already halfway there. I'm coming, man. I'm, I'm on my way to heal him. And the word I is emphasized in the Greek sentence as if to say, I don't know what the response of others would be to your request, but I want to come. Again, we see a Jesus extremely eager to help. And this is the picture our chapter wants to burn into our consciousness about the God whom Jesus represents. Emmanuel, the God who is with us and who in deep mystery somehow Jesus himself is. And here's the key point. The Lord we worship is almost inordinately ready to meet needs. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? The Lord we worship is almost inordinately, inordinately ready to meet our needs. Faith is allowing Jesus to be Jesus in and for us. So then the centurions, like Jesus is like, I'm on my way. And he's like, oh, just hold on. He says, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. So what happens next in the story is another revelation of grace. God's unmerited favor or God's unfair love towards us. You see, what we read, there's the, the same story is recorded in Luke's gospel about the centurion, is that he was really a virtuous man. He doesn't have a typical racist attitude towards those Rome has conquered, and he even could be a Gentile worshiper of Yahweh. So in Luke's gospel, what we see is that the religious leaders actually come to Jesus on the centurion's behalf, and they plead for help based on the fact that the centurion is quote-unquote worthy of help. But we read here, the centurion disagrees. He's like, no, I actually am not worthy. I'm not even worthy of being in the same room as you, Jesus. And let's, this is really important. If he stopped there, he would be operating outside the paradigm of grace. That's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. He would have gone into the same paradigm that the, rel the religious leaders were using. The paradigm that you and I so very often fall into ourselves. And th that's this. We can and must earn God's love and approval through the work in our own lives. Or put another way, God's power comes into the life of the worthy. God's power comes into the life of those who are morally upright and therefore deserve it. Is that correct? No. In the simplest of terms, this is how we could summarize that. Help me because I'm good or don't help me because I'm bad. But what he says is amazing. I am not worthy, he says. I am actually nothing. I don't deserve for you to be in the same room as me. So would you please do what I ask? The centurion basically says, listen, Jesus, I am never going to be able to earn your power work in my life. I am not worthy. You are all worthy. So here's my idea. Bring your healing into my life. Bring your power into my life on some other basis. Not my moral virtue, which will never be enough. Some other basis. And Jesus' eyes light up. He's like, yes, you are getting it. You're getting it. Some other basis. Augustine said this, By owning himself unworthy for Christ to enter his house, he became worthy for Christ to enter his heart. 
So this centurion, this upstanding citizen who was well-liked, as you could surmise from the story, is, is an upstanding citizen, is staking his trust and building his life on a different foundation. He's taking a risk. He's saying, I need to build on a new basis. So what he's doing is he's transferring his basic life trust from where it was, his own moral virtue, to the grace of Jesus. He's being set free. He's calling on grace. And Jesus says, that's it. That is it. We see here that faith is more than just believing the right things about God. It is allowing the things on which you build your life, your basic foundational trust, the trust structures to be exposed and handed over to Jesus and transferring all of your weight onto him. Lord, work in my life based in who you are, not based in who I am. I will never be able to earn your favor. Yet when I surrender and trust to you, you show favor. So what we see here is that faith in Jesus provides a new foundation. And what we see is that Jesus is amazed. Just say the word and my son will be healed because I too am a man under authority, the centurion goes on. Or in other words, I, I get, I, I'm an, I also am an agent of another as you are of your father. And I also have soldiers under me as you have, I guess, disease under you. Right? Hearing this, Jesus was amazed, the text says. Faith coming from the least expected place. A Gentile centurion. Not from the religious leaders inundated with the story of God. Just like Maggie Rogers, the young white girl from Maryland impressing Pharrell, did not see that coming. The ones who should have faith did not, and the one who shouldn't have faith did. Disruption. Surprising. Grace. A pagan believes that Jesus' mere word, all alone, can heal his son even at a distance. This is remarkable faith in anyone, but especially in a person with so little background. Jesus has to admit that he had never found faith in all of scripturally instructed Israel to compare with the faith of this outsider, Dale Brunner says. Wholehearted trust that Jesus was able to act on his behalf to accomplish what he never could. Then Jesus goes on to say some interesting stuff. He says this, <clears throat> Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's actually like an underhanded compliment. Because what Jesus, Jesus is like, his followers are there. He's like, dudes, like, I've never seen faith like this. And Peter is like, what? What do you mean? What are you talking about? I imagine they'd be a little bit put off. He's saying, a guy who shouldn't get it gets it. And you guys who should get it, you just still don't get it. And what we see here is, is the heart of God, which is way bigger than we can imagine. His desire to bless all people, not just the people of Israel. That his grace extends to all, even in this case, his followers' enemy. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount? Loving your enemies. Um, and then just a, a quick aside here. Did you know that when Jesus talks about hell, which is what he's alluding to here, he's always speaking to people who assume they're not going there. Essentially what he's warning is, hey, you may think you're comfortably in, but you may not be. And there are others that you think are most definitely not in that actually are. 
The ones we might assume are in are actually out, and the ones we'd assume are out are actually in. That's what Jesus is warning here. Meaning this, believing the right things about God isn't enough to get you in. Moral virtue isn't enough to get you in. Growing up in the church isn't enough to get you in. Tithing isn't enough to get you in. Equally, growing up outside the church isn't enough to keep you out. Or being an outsider isn't enough to keep you out. Or not knowing all of your doctrine isn't enough to keep you out. What he's saying is this, total trust and dependence on the saving work of Jesus Christ is all that matters. This is the substance of our faith. So more on that in a second. So then Jesus tells the centurion, man, I just, you just imagine just the look in his eyes, like just amazement. Go, man, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his son was healed that very moment. What we read, guys, is that Jesus acted on the centurion's behalf. He took the aspirin for the headache and the headache was gone. The object of the centurion's faith was adequate. He stepped out onto the right rock. Praise God. And the, what we see is that the first long-distance healing in the gospel occurs. Another outsider shown love from the very inside of the heart of God. The other thing worth noting here, this is just a quick aside, is this is a picture of intercessory prayer. Simply bringing someone else's situation before God and asking him to help, right? The son is healed by Jesus through another person's faith. So maybe just there's someone that's coming to mind for you. Who in your life could you bring before Jesus? And who knows what he wanted, might want to do? You guys okay? Okay, now I close. I am not going to give you five steps to level up your faith. I will charge you $9.99 for my online course for that. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? However, I am going to attempt to answer the question we began with, okay? How do we amaze Jesus? This is my, this is my theory. In order to amaze Jesus, one must be first amazed by Jesus and remain amazed by Jesus. In order to amaze Jesus, one must first be amazed by Jesus and remain being amazed by Jesus. The story of the gospel, for example, that Jesus, the Son of God, saw the brokenness and delusion and destruction our sin had caused. Your sin, my sin. And so he decides to leave the riches and glory of heaven and to come to do something about it. To come down to earth, to subject himself to the annoyances and disturbances and frustrations of the human body. To live and walk along the earth. To come and find us in our delusion, in our rebellion, in our blindness, and to bring light into the darkness. He comes to show us what God is actually like. He is gracious, compassionate, just, holy, gentle, lowly, trustworthy, surprising, faithful when we are faithless. He comes to forgive and restore and heal and to love. And ultimately, he comes down to lay down his life for us. To take into himself all of our sin, our shame, our brokenness, and all of the havoc that it wreaks. To take on our enemy, the devil, that we could never defeat in our own strength. To destroy death itself. And ultimately, to die in our place. 
offering himself up as a sacrifice to cover us, to pay our unpayable debt, to rise again in the power of the Spirit three days later, to ascend back to the Father where right now he is seated, interceding on our behalf, and who will one day return. This Jesus is amazing. This Jesus who included us in his death, who included, who included us in his resurrection, and who included us in his ascension, this Jesus who shares all that he is with you and with me. So much so that the New Testament says that we are hidden in Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are partakers of the, of the divine nature, which means this, what's true of Jesus is now true of you. Come on. And you know why? He did all of this because he flipping loves you. And because he couldn't help himself. This is who he is. This is who God is. And yes, this news does sound in some ways too good to be true. And yes, I'm immediately sure that you want to pull out your metaphorical checkbook and try to pay him back. But you can't because you were saved by grace. It's a gift. Deal with it. The journey he's called us into that we will walk that he will walk with us is a journey of learning to trust him more and more each day. That he is who he says he is, that he will do what he said he will, that when you step out over that ledge onto that rock, he will not let you down. So whatever your need is today, whatever disruption you may be may be revealing within you, may the spirit of God help you see Jesus clearly. Would he empower you to risk the transfer of your entire life's trust to the unfailing God revealed in Jesus? Would you call on grace, undeserved, unfair, unbelievable grace, and would you let Jesus be Jesus for you? Let him save you. Let him redeem you. Let him rescue you. Let him heal you. He is inordinately ready to meet your needs. He is steady. He can and will carry the full weight of your life. He is unchanging and unflinchingly good. He is amazing. Amen. I want to, I want to close with a poem by uh, Ted Loder. And I want, to just, I want us to hold this prayer in our hearts because there's another story in the Bible um, where... This man comes to Jesus for him to heal his son who's, who's demonized. And the man is coming to the right place. He doesn't have a ton of faith. He's coming to the right source, though. The object of his faith is valid. And he's saying, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And some of us might be there this morning. I want to believe. I want to believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And that's okay. That's a beautiful place to be, actually. So with that in mind, I want to read this poem, which is actually a prayer by Ted Loader, and then we'll close. Oh God, I am so fragile. My dreams get broken. My relationships get broken. My heart gets broken. My body gets broken. What can I believe except that you will not despise a broken heart, that old and broken people shall yet dream dreams, and that the lame shall leap for joy, the blind see, the deaf hear. What can I believe except what Jesus taught? That only what is first broken, like bread, can be shared. That only what is broken is open to your entry. That old wineskins must be ripped open and replaced if the wine of new life is to expand. 
So, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, that I may have courage to keep trying when I am tired and to keep wanting passionately when I am found wanting. O God, I am so frail. My life spins like a top, bounced about by the clumsy hands of demands beyond my doing, fanned by furies at a pace but half a step from hysteria. So much to do, my days so few and fast spent, and I am mostly unable to recall what I am rushing after. What can I believe, except that beyond the limits of my little prayers and careful creeds, I am not meant for dust and darkness, but for dancing life in silver starlight. Help my unbelief that I may have courage to dare to love the enemies I have the integrity to make. To care for little else, save my brothers and sisters of the human family. To take time to be truly with them. Take time to see, take time to speak, take time to learn with them before time takes us. And to fear failure and death less than the faithlessness of not embracing love's risks. God, I am so frantic. Somehow I've lost my gentleness in a flood of ambition. Lost my sense of wonder in a maze of videos and computers. Lost my integrity in a shuffle of commercial disguises. Lost my gratitude in a swarm of criticisms and complaints. Lost my innocence in a sea of betrayals and compromises. What can I believe except that the touch of your mercy will ease the anguish of my memory? That the tug of your spirit will empower me to help carry now the burdens I have loaded on the lives of others. That the example of Jesus will inspire me to find again my humanity. Here it is. So I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, that I may have courage to cut free from what I have been and gamble on what, you, what can be and on what you might laughingly do with trembling me for your incredible world. Amen. God, help. We trust you. Amen.